we invite you to this coming week's message of Good Theology, a podcast ministry of the Good Theology Project, a mission of ministry to seek, sow, and spread God's kingdom of love here on earth. We cannot wait for someone else to do later what God has already called us to do here and now. To learn more about the Good Theology Project, visit us online at goodtheology.life. Grace and peace to you, friends of Good Theology. Now, before we get started today, we actually had uh, an interesting question written, uh, submitted to us uh, regarding our uh, Easter message. And so one of our listeners wanted to know if God planned for the snake to trick Adam and Eve, if that was part of God's plan. And in the same way that God had planned for for, um, Christ's death as a... uh, something to be used, right? Did God plan for the snake? And what we wanted to clarify was that, no, we weren't making the claim that the snake was the plan, was part of God's plan, right? We weren't saying that that was, that wasn't a Job moment, right? Where in Job, um, the adversary comes to God and says, let me test Job. And God says, sure, go ahead and test Job. It's not the same. We weren't posing that as a situation. Um, We were just saying how amazing would it have been if we realized that the devil was being, that, that the snake was being used when it thought it was using, right? In the same way that in the Easter scenario, right? In the patent that Christ is actually using the devil to uh, it, further God's own plan. But so to that question, because it is an interesting one to ask, we have two things that we want to recognize. First, we want to recognize that particularly with stories from Noah and earlier, right? So everything from Noah all the way through Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, um, we have no way of knowing about their historicity. Um, We have no way of knowing if they are actually true, right? Like we know Jesus lived, we know that Pilate lived, we have, that's more um, factual in its nature because we're a lot closer to it. Uh, There's much more to the story for us to say. I mean, there's more for us to be able to believe into that. But a lot of the story in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, it's, and I've said this before, it's fact or fiction, it's truth is actually to focus on that would be to focus improperly, right? Because it doesn't matter if it's true or if it's false in terms of it's how how truthful it is. It is important because of what God teaches us through scripture about those scenarios, right? There's so much to learn from Adam and Eve that to ask, was there an Adam and Eve uh, frankly, dishonors what what God is trying to tell us and teach us and impart upon us. Now, that doesn't answer this question, right? Because your question, uh, listener, was was God 
using the snake and or tricking the snake into doing God's bidding. And we, I, I actually think that in this instance, in the Adam and Eve instance, that's not a case of God tricking the, state, the snake. Um, because I think what's important to pull out from the, the overarching message of that story, right, is that humans are one, that we are fallible, that we are not perfect, right? And another thing is that we have free will, right? One of the most important things that we learn from Adam and Eve is that free will is something that God has given us, God has allowed us to maintain, um, allowed us to have, is part of our human nature, and that we can make the bad choice of choosing not God, choosing not to follow God. And so I wouldn't say that God tricked the snake or the, the snake tricking Adam and Eve was part of God's plan. But I would say that that story is a really important, it's a really, really fundamentally important um, lesson and story for us to know about our understanding of free will. And our understanding about our relationship with God is based on that choice. God will always love us, but our choice in choosing God must happen over and over and over again. We hope that uh, answers your question. And as always, please feel free to uh, email us or vis vis visit us online if you have any other questions. Now, before we go ahead and get started, uh, please do, let's do what we always do, center ourselves and our intentions. Hmm our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, our behavior to share you. Glory be to you, God, source of all being, incarnate word and Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now, today's scripture actually comes from 1 John 3, verses 1 through 7, and is being read from the New Revised Standard Version. Um, as always, a link to the scripture is going to be is available in the podcast description. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The word of God for the people of God. So I don't know if you've noticed yet, but these past few weeks, we've been talking about some big ticket Christian themes. On Easter, we talked about Christ the Redeemer. Uh, last week, we talked about how to pass the true peace with others. And so this week, uh, we're going to talk about this giant elephant in the room of Christianity the nature of sin. 
Okay, so my own personal story about uh, sin to help us talk about it uh, is going to be a pretty going to be a pretty ambiguous, kind of confusing, small one. Um, so we can talk about it a little bit more and really get into the, the nature of it, right? So my own personal story about this, to help us talk about it, takes place last Wednesday night. Uh, and it's because on last Wednesday, uh, and actually about every evening for a week before then, um, I just couldn't be bothered to pray my nightly prayers. And to take a, a to, to stop and take a second, I'm not saying that like doing nightly prayer, like not doing nightly prayer is a sin, but it was a sin for me. And it was a sin for me because I have already made a commitment to God a long time ago that doing a nightly examination was a really important way that he and I would stay connected, right? Because the thing about sin. The thing that is so difficult to catch until it's too late is that we can always make excuses for ourselves that, at least at first, they sound okay. Mine were, I was too tired that day. Or maybe I was too depressed the day before that. I didn't have time, or I was spending time with people that I love. There are always good reasons. Reasons that if we aren't careful can create patterns over time. And I want to be clear here, the, stimble, the, the sin that I had stumbled myself into just by the nature and exhaustion of life was the kind of sin John is actually talking about. He uses the word lawlessness, but what he means is rejection. You see, what I love about 1 John 3 is that unlike the Apostle Paul, John the Elder tries to be overtly clear so that we're not confused. When Paul talks about sin in Galatians and Colossians and all of his epistles, right, like sometimes we misunderstand him and think it's about very specific things. Don't do that specific thing or this is a, like, it becomes material and explicit. But, and John gets melodramatic and hyperbolic, for sure, right? But he's trying to impart a larger understanding. He's trying to give us a holistic teaching of sin that isn't about specific small things that for the past 2,000 years have created massive abuses inside the church and have left us feeling wounded, hurt, rejected. Now, John, just like other scripture writers, plays on audience-specific words. He uses that as teaching tools. And most of John's compatriots, the people he's writing to, were fellow house or fellow Christian house churches in the region of Ephesus. And this is important because they were also, it's important to know that they were mostly Jewish converts to Christianity. So the language that he's using, the imagery he uses, what he's trying to talk about is specific so that they understand what he's saying. When he uses lawlessness, 
He's playing into the Jewish understandings of law, order, and procedure as set forth by God. God the creator, God who ordered all things, who brought order from chaos, right? And so they know if Jesus is the fulfillment of that law, of those laws, if that's the way they think about law, then what's the lawlessness that John talks about? Why does he use that word? What is he trying to inspire in them? He's piqued their curiosity. Hopefully, I have also piqued yours. <laughs> um, so for us to understand this law and law lawlessness, John uh, talks about sin. To understand it, I actually want us to give a larger picture of all of 1 John 3, right? Not just these seven verses that we've heard. Because it's in verses 1, 3, 10, 18, 21, and then 24 that we're given this scope of what he means. Okay, so we've already heard verses 1 and 3. We are children of God, that is what we are, and all of us who have this hope, we purify ourselves just like Jesus is pure, right? We are gods. We belong to God, and most importantly, we are from him. We have an important relationship with God. And it's important that in that relationship, we be on this journey of human perfection. But what is this perfection and purity that he means? Well, so in verse 4, he might call this the opposite of lawlessness, right? He calls us to this opposite of lawlessness. But in verse 10, he says, the lawless are revealed not by doing what is right, nor those who don't love their brothers and sisters. It's in that verse that we begin to understand what Elder John means. Because he doesn't mean archaic, I've already said he doesn't mean archaic and legalistic laws that the Pharisees were so strict on, that Jesus preached against, right? And then in 18, where he says, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth, in action. And then again in 21 and 24, where he says, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and all who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. Now, I know I've just thrown at you like seven different verses, and I haven't really unpacked it together, and you're like, are you going to land this plane, or are we just going to keep circling the airport, right? What does it all mean? It means that not only are we children of God, but that God is already within all of our hearts, helping us to know when we're doing right and wrong, and that abiding in his two commandments, all who really take those two matter, mantras of loving God and loving neighbor, and then live by them faithfully, that is what John calls a sinless life. It's not the... Uh, don't do this and don't do that. The sin is the rejection of not abiding in God and not loving your neighbor. And everything else hangs on those two things. So how is me not doing nightly prayers my sin or a sin that I commit? How from all that do we get a nature of sin itself? Well, because instead of making the mistake that so many others have made of by saying, by wagging a finger at myself about a specific action, 
what John is saying, what he, he's saying that this lawlessness is that rejection of everything I've just said. So, <laughs> it is the nature of things. The ordered creation, right? We, you can begin to understand what sin is in the first three books of Genesis, when God created the world and called it good. It gives you an understanding that sin is a rejection of that kind of unconditional order and love. So in my case, my sin of not praying that nightly prayer was not the not praying part. My sin was letting comfort and laziness be stronger than my abiding in God, than God's desire to deepen his relationship with me in ways that I had already told God that I would do it. I'm not saying that you all need to do nightly prayers, right? I'm saying that I told God that I would do that. And then I reneged on that relationship. I'd like to put it a different way. Out of all of the movies I could pick from when I think about sin, when I think about the nature of sin, uh, what comes to mind, honestly, are Christmas movies. So just bear with me on this one. Because what John the Elder distinguishes as purity and sin is what we in modern culture have called the Christmas spirit or the lack of Christmas spirit. And if you don't re recall what, what I mean, because we're already past Easter at this point, right? So, like Christmas was a while ago. Um, <laughs> you just think about Scrooge from A Christmas Carol or The Grinch or my personal favorite, the whole town of Smearinsburg from the movie Klaus. In that movie, you have this whole town of what John the Elder would consider sinners, what John the Elder would consider sinners. Because when our main guy, Jesper, gets there, you have everyone only caring about themselves. No one is being kind or loving to anyone else. No one is living a life that God designed all of us to live. They were rejecting the natural laws of God, the law of love, the law of creation. And then Jesper and Klaus get the whole town to change. And it's great because about 45, you're only like 45 minutes in the movie. And Jesper is asked like, how does Santa, Santa know when someone's been naughty or nice, right? And Jesper says, he sees everything. I mean, that's, it's clear in that moment. It's like a perfect analogy for God and sin and God knowing and God being able to see all, right? And these kids, they start doing all of these good deeds and they try and show God how good they are, right? Now, God is not an ATM. It's not transactional. It's not, I do good things and then God gives me a toy. But, and yes, I say, but because the more lovingly good things you do, the presence of love, the abiding of Christ, that does get delivered. That does get shared. That does start 
to grow. It is a gift. Your world does become a better place. No one's going to tell me that if we all acted with love, this wouldn't be a nicer place for us all to live. And that goodness of the kids in Smearinsburg, it transforms that town just 45 minutes into the movie. Children of goodness were transforming their own town through kindness and pure behavior. And that desire to do good for Santa, that's what it means to abide in Christ. It means to put Christ as the object of your focus. My sin was my losing that focus, my rejecting that focus, my selfishness. For too long, we've looked at sin as legalistic. It's not about rule breaking. If it were about rule breaking, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. They had the rules in the Old Testament. And God was like, that didn't work for you guys, so I'm giving you Jesus because we need a different way of doing things. So it's not about rules. It's about pollution, rejection, and being twisted away from the thing that you know we are called to. It's about our behaviors and our attitudes. It's about purpose and direction. Greed isn't a sin because wanting something is bad. Greed is a sin because it puts the love of materialness above the love of God and above the love of neighbor. I invite you, all of you, just as John the Elder invites all of us, to take time this week and wonder about what, the, what are the small ways, the everyday ways, that we sin, that we reject being children of God and making the people and places around us better places to be in. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Good Theology. To learn more, please find us online at goodtheology.life.